Everybody wants to be blessed. Some of you grew up in Catholic church, perhaps, and there were a variety of ways that you could receive a blessing, different prayers you could offer. Maybe you went to confession and you began with something like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. There was a period in, in, uh, in evangelical culture in the United States, I think it was like the late 90s and the early 2000s, when there were many sermons and studies on blessings and preachers and curriculums talked about keys to a blessed life, altar calls and conference promotions included appeals to come and receive your blessing. And some thought that if a particular preacher prayed for them, that's how they would be blessed. And at some point, a transition seems to occur where blessing is now more associated with being thankful and a sort of middle-class aesthetic. It's kind of a humble brag to let everyone know that you're well-off and God loves you more than he loves them, and it can be found on decor and t-shirts and hoodies and even tattoos. But you have to have a very specific style font. I brought a picture of that font for you. You'll all recognize it, I'm sure, if you can shut. You've seen this on wood cutouts and things at, at various uh, Christian decorating places. I'm sure you're aware of what I'm talking about. And you, you, they use this very specific font that is flowy and cursive, and, and you know only a blessed middle-class mom has handwriting like that. And if you get one with an arrow through it, and, and, and I don't know why there'd be an arrow through it. I don't know why, you know, anyone would shoot an arrow through blessed. But if you get the one with the arrow through it, that's extra. That's like an, a step up in your blessing. That's to let people know, woo, I'm really blessed. That's taking it up a level. And so we, we want to be blessed. Everybody wants to be blessed. And, and they want to have a good life. You want to have a happy life. You want to live comfortably. You want to have your needs met. But there are many very different ideas about what it means to be blessed or how to be blessed. Usually people in the broader culture associate blessing with external possessions, health, and happiness, and often attribute blessing to some mixture of luck and hard work, and maybe some vague notion of a higher power. Religious people, whether they're Christian religious people in name or people who practice other religions, often attribute blessing to ritual. Did you do what you were supposed to do to get what, what you want from God? Did you, did you do the minimal thing that you were required to do in order to get God to give you what you wanted? That could be attendance, it could be giving, it could be some other worship ritual that's done out of a manipulative obligation rather than faithful obedience and love for God. Today we're in our fourth message in the book of Haggai and we've seen that the remnant of God's people had returned from exile in Babylon but they had failed to rebuild God's temple. They started but the work quickly came to a halt because of fear and because of external pressures and political intrigue and so for 15 years that foundation that had been laid for the temple lay dormant with no work being done until God sent the prophet Haggai to speak a message and confront the people. It was a message of challenge and of encouragement to the leaders and the people, telling them to lay aside their fears and their excuses, to reorder their misplaced priorities and put God first, and to resume the work on God's house. And they did that. However, we saw two weeks ago that they quickly became discouraged with the work. The work was slower than they expected. It didn't appear to be as great or big or as grand as the previous temple. They needed the reassurance of God's presence and of his provision to refocus them. But there was another problem and there was another discouragement that came to the people in their lives and that was their personal needs. We learned from Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 that they had worked hard 
but they didn't have much to show for it. It says there, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. They had started working again. They were being obedient. They were giving up time and effort and energy and resources to put it into the work of the temple, of God's house, which meant that they weren't working in their fields, that they weren't working on their homes, that they weren't repairing their tools, they weren't planting their own crops. Could they expect God to meet their needs while they served his house? And this is a question that Christians have to answer regarding blessing and how we're blessed. Does God's blessing come because we are Christian in name? Because we attend church once in a while and think that we're generally moral or good people, but we basically keep putting ourselves first with a little bit of a side of God to improve our odds? Is that how blessing happens? I'm going to live for me and have a little of God over here because that improves my odds of having a comfortable and a good life. Is that blessing? Or does blessing come when we set our lives apart for God, put him first, put service to his kingdom first, and trust him to meet our needs? And in order to understand this passage, uh, the passage this morning, and, and answer some questions we might have about it, we need to go back in time from Haggai, back somewhere about 900 years to the time of the Exodus, when God was bringing his people Israel out of captivity in Israel in Egypt and into the promised land. God made a covenant. He made an agreement with his people at that time. They were to worship him. They were supposed to put him first in all things. And if they would do that, he would provide for them. And he made this covenant and gave them a very, very specific reminder, one that came multiple times a year, one that would, would be impossible, it would seem, to ignore, and yet somehow they had found ways to ignore it. He talks about it in De Deuteronomy eleven ten to 17, where he says this, for the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full." Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You see, the very land that God was giving to his people, we call it a land flowing with milk and honey, but the very land itself was to be an illustration, a parable, a reminder to them, we depend on God. If he doesn't sustain us, we don't survive, and we need to be dedicated to him as a result. The land itself was supposed to be a reminder. We can give our all to God because he said if we give our all to God, he will take care of us. He will provide 
for our needs. It wasn't like the land they were coming from, Egypt, that was flat and could be irrigated by the Nile River. It wasn't like that. There was no central river running through the land of Israel. You couldn't get the water from the Jordan up into the mountains and onto the plateaus. They had to rely on the rain, and it was an illustration over and over again in their lives. We depend on God. Now, God hasn't made this kind of covenant with us. He hasn't moved us into a land without irrigation and promised to send rain so that we can grow crops if we keep his commandments. So we shouldn't try to make some kind of one-to-one application with the promises that we read today. We're not Israel, and God's covenant with us is a different covenant. But the principles that we learn about holiness also apply to the covenant that God has made through his son, Jesus Christ, with us. So Haggai's third message to the people could be summarized and applied to us like this. If you want to be blessed, you have to be holy. If you want to be blessed, you have to be holy. This is not the world's recipe for blessing. In fact, if you're paying attention to the world, you would think that the best way to live a happy and a life and have a blessed life is to live for yourself to cover your bases by worshiping a variety of idols, like money and success, and maybe throw in some spiritualism and some mysticism. But that's not God's recipe for blessing. His recipe for blessing is be totally set apart for me. The Lord's message through Haggai reveals several lessons about holiness that apply in our lives, as well as they apply to the people, even though the covenant we live under is different. Just about twice a year, Usually once in the late fall and then again in maybe the late winter, something happens at my house that I would very much like to avoid. One of my multiple kids will come home from school with a cold, and I try to avoid contact with this individual. I remind them to use tissues. Andrea wipes down all of the surfaces. I blow kisses to them rather than getting all up in their grill, and I make jokes that aren't really jokes about staying away from me because I don't want to be sick. I don't want their germs, but it's inevitable. I don't know why I try. I might as well kiss them and share a bowl of ice cream and just get it over with because I'm going to get that cold. It's going to happen. Some people think that holiness and blessings are a bit like catching a cold, only kind of a good cold, I guess. They think that if they come to church once in a while and expose themselves to it, If they carry out the rituals, maybe get baptized, pray once in a while, use some Christian words, maybe they'll catch holiness like a cold somehow, and maybe they'll be blessed as a result. The first few verses of our passage address this. As a sort of illustration for the point that he wanted to make for his people, the Lord sent Haggai to the priests to ask a question. They were the experts in God's law. And so he sends them in Haggai 2, 10 to 12. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So this is about two months after the last message we heard from Haggai about discouragement. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Now this sounds very strange to us. It's very foreign to our church context, but it would have made perfect sense to them. In fact, there were multiple kinds of sacrifices that they would offer to the Lord that didn't all 
require to be burned up. The sacrifice wasn't actually uh, always one that, that they left the whole animal there. Sometimes what they were supposed to do with part of the sacrifice was actually to eat it. And usually they would have been required to eat that sacrifice in the temple or around the the courtyard of the temple. And you can read about this in in a couple of places. Leviticus 6.26 and Leviticus 7.6 are a couple of the places that talk about these kinds of sacrifices. Ezra 3, 1 through 6 describes how the altar on which the sacrifices were made had already been rebuilt after the, after the, the exiles had returned. It had been rebuilt about 15 years previously, and sacrifices were being made and resumed on that. But there was no temple or temple courts in which to eat the fellowship offerings that were being made there. So it's likely that people were carrying them home. And one way to carry them home was that they would have taken part of that sacrifice that was made and put it in the fold of their garment. Now, my pants don't have it, so I can't show you, but if you had a robe and it was wrapped around you, you could pull part of that robe up and use it like a sack. So it'd be like your sack taken to the grocery store, the reusable one that you're required to have, right? And so they would take that and they would carry it home. And, and so that's probably what was going on here. And the law made clear that the meat that had been offered to God, it was holy, That's what it means to be offered to God. It had been consecrated to him. It was holy meat. And it said that whatever touched that meat would become holy as well. But that's where the transfer stopped. It couldn't be be transferred to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. When the person got home and they were eating and their robe rubbed up against a loaf of bread or they spilled some stew on it, that food didn't suddenly become holy food. Now, that might all sound a little technical and odd to you, and it was supposed to sound a little odd. The priests and people knew that that's not how holiness works. Holiness couldn't be transferred like that. You can't just go around spreading holiness from one thing to another as if holiness is just a ritualistic idea and has nothing to do with actual devotion or separation to the Lord. And yet that's how the people were treating it. They were treating holiness as if it was rubbing off on them somehow. They were offering sacrifices, they were going through the motions as far as they could, but they hadn't actually devoted themselves to the Lord. And to this point, they hadn't obeyed the Lord, and they hadn't put him first. They wanted the Lord to bless them because they were offering sacrifices and because they lived on his promised land and because they had started to do what he had asked them to do, but that's not real holiness. Holiness is total devotion. It means that you're given over to the Lord. It means that nothing is withheld. It means a total dependence on him. Remember how they were supposed to keep the Lord's commands and honor him and only him and the land itself and the rain that they relied on was supposed to remind them of how they also relied on the Lord? Well, they had apparently forgotten that. They started to treat the Lord and his altar and his sacrifices as if they were some kind of good luck charm and the holiness was rubbing off and and God should be taking care of them even though they actually hadn't dedicated themselves to him. They started to think of religion as something that could be added onto their lives rather than understanding that their relationship to the Lord was the very essence of their lives. They wanted a holiness that could be caught by going through the motions instead of a holiness that comes from total devotion. But that's not how holiness works. And people still do the same things today that they did. 
They come to church thinking that perhaps holiness will rub off on them. Or at least that God will be satisfied because they were here. Or they think that maybe they will catch holiness by being around holy people or being in a holy place. They don't want to actually be holy, but they do want to be blessed. And since they think that God will bless them for being here or praying or for some other religious stuff, they do it half-heartedly, adding it onto the side of their lives as if holiness is something that catches on or rubs off on you. Friends, holiness can't be caught. You can't get holiness because your family was Christian because you grew up Christian, because you come once in a while, because you use certain words or or that you you consider yourself a good person. You can't come to church every once in a while and hope that that rubs off on you somehow. It can't be found in religious practices that are devoid of any real heart or dedication to the Lord. The reality is your hope for holiness is zero, but for Jesus. You can't catch holiness Because holiness is a gift. God makes us holy through faith in Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. If you've been trying to catch holiness, If you've been trying to make yourself clean to be right with God by doing religious stuff, I have good news for you. God has a free gift of salvation through Jesus, and when you receive that gift, God makes you right with him, and he sets you apart for himself. He makes you his. That's holiness. Holiness is when God stamps on your heart, set apart for me. This one belongs to me. All mine is what holiness means. It doesn't mean you give God Sunday morning. Doesn't mean you think you'll come and do a few religious things and holiness will get caught and rub off on you. It means everything I am now belongs to the Lord. Doesn't mean you offer a few moments of prayer. You don't give up something for him. You surrender everything to him. That's holiness. And Christian, If you're living as if you can catch holiness from religious things, there's a warning here for you. You can't offer part of yourself to the Lord. You cannot serve the Lord and serve something else. He will not tolerate anything that attempts to usurp his place. His demands are total. But with that total demand comes total liberty in Jesus, the fullness of the Spirit, the joy of salvation, and the hope of God's promises. At Romans 12, 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not a time you set aside a few moments on Sunday morning. Worship is your whole self offered to God. God, I'm all yours, everything that I have. Every dream, every desire, every hope for the future, every disappointment from my past, every part of me, Lord, dedicated to you. A living sacrifice doesn't sound partial, does it? It's set apart for the Lord in every way. That's not giving a little, that's giving all. Because God gave his son for you. 
Stop trying to catch holiness. You can't catch it by your religious actions or by being around holy people. Receive it as a gift and then offer everything you are to the Lord. Give him everything. Hold nothing back. Reserve no space. Reserve no money. Reserve no time. Reserve no thought. Reserve no sin. Take no habit, no dreams, no plans. Don't play religion. Don't play church. Be set apart to the Lord. Be holy and you will be blessed. Be holy, set apart to the Lord. Haggai moved on to ask another question. It says, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer, that is their sacrifices here, are unclean. Now, unclean didn't mean that they were like externally dirty, physically dirty, nor were they thinking about something like germs, like we might think about. Uncleanness refers to a state of being unfit to enter God's presence or to enter a holy place, a place that's dedicated to the Lord. And the worst kind of uncleanness came when a person had contact or touched a dead body. It probably was the worst kind of uncleanness because it was an illustration of the effects of sin and how it spreads since death is the ultimate result of sin. Someone who touched a dead body had to go outside the camp, away from the holy place, away from the temple, away from God's holy people, and they had to remain there, go through a series of ritual cleansings, and and then wait before they could come back into the camp and into the temple. And contrary to holiness, Uncleanness could be caught. Anyone and anything that someone who had touched a dead body came into contact with also became unclean. The uncleanness spread like a disease. And this is part of the law that was designed to teach God's people something about the nature of sin. And Haggai used it to illustrate the state of God's people. They were unclean, not because they had touched a dead body, but because they had failed to honor and obey God by putting his house first and rebuilding the temple. They weren't ritually unclean. They were morally unclean. And that uncleanness spread like the cold in my house during the school year. Everything they touched, every work, every act of worship became unclean because they hadn't obeyed the Lord. And this is another admonition that we can't offer perfunctory service to the Lord, but it also illustrates for us how easily evil spreads. Sometimes we think that we can separate our religious lives from our everyday lives. We can separate our Christianity from what we do the rest of the week or the rest of the time, but no such separation is possible. God said that because they were unclean, everything they offered was unclean. When we come to the Lord and offer him less than all, nothing we offer to him is clean. I I don't mean to, to downplay the grace of God that we all require. We must and we need God's grace, each of us needs that, and we have to emphasize God's grace. We rely on that grace, but there are also times where we must be reminded that God's grace is not cheap. His grace leads us to holiness, to total surrender to the Lord. And as we read in Romans chapter 12, verse one, it's because of God's mercy that we offer our lives or our whole selves as living sacrifices. The fact that Wickedness spreads so easily 
should cause us to consider what do I allow into my life? We have so many inputs because of our constant attachment to media through televisions and radios and phones. And we may be tempted to think that these little devices and the entertainment services that we welcome through them are really no big deal, but we should not forget that uncleanness spreads and that perhaps the entertainment we welcome is subtly instilling attitudes that do not cause us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, but they're teaching us things like harboring sexual fantasies or jealous thoughts or selfish and rude behaviors or angry reactions to people. Wickedness spreads easily. So perhaps we should consider the people that we allow to have influence in our lives There may be people who are not influencing you toward holiness, but spreading wickedness in your life. And I'm not telling you to get rid of all of your unchristian, unsaved friends, but you do have to discern your maturity. And whether you are influencing them toward holiness, which doesn't spread easily, or they are influencing you toward wickedness, or lustful jokes, or bad language and bad habits, and religious attitudes rather than holy attitudes, because those things do spread easily. You can't catch holiness. But the warning that Haggai reminded God's people of is this, that wickedness does spread, and you can catch that. So let me ask you, what are you catching? What are you catching in your life? Are you catching wickedness because you've allowed influences that are moving you away from God and that are causing the very things that you think you're offering to God to actually be tainted by the sin you've allowed to reign in your life? Or have you dedicated yourself wholly to the Lord, recognizing that if you want to be blessed, you have to be holy? I've already implied this third lesson, but now I need to make it explicit. You can't catch holiness, but you can practice holiness by putting God first. Look at the rest of the passage in Haggai, verses Uh, down to verse 19, it says this, Now then consider from this day onward before stone, stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. You did not, re- you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on... I will bless you. The people had experienced all kinds of hardships in their lives. Their harvests were not as large as they expected. They never seemed to have as much as they thought they would. The specifics of coming to a pile of grain and, and, not, and being disappointed by how much was there or not getting as much ju- juice out of the grape harvest as they hoped, that those specifics may elude us, but the point is clear. They were consistently frustrated by not having enough. They were not blessed. I like to think of it like this. You're at an event, you had dinner, it's dessert time. They serve the dessert, you're looking forward to a cup of coffee with that dessert because that's good. You should always have coffee with dessert. And so you get up, you take your little cup up to those big carafes they have, right? You put your little cup under there, you pull the lever, and a little trickle comes out. 
And you're thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So you tip that thing up, right? You know what to do next. You tip that thing up. And the stuff that comes out next is like coffee sludge. It's grounds. It's nasty. It's undrinkable. And you're disappointed. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Even the non-coffee drinkers, you know what I'm talking about, right? It is utterly disappointing. Now, you know what? The consequences of not getting coffee with dessert are far less severe than what they were going through. But at least, hopefully, we can understand what the Bible's talking about. They were consistently disappointed because they went expecting something. They sowed their seed. They, they stored their grain expecting something. But they were continually frustrated. Their crops were ruined because they had not put God first. But when did the turning point come? It came when they started working on the temple, when they laid the foundation, when they went beyond words and intentions and rituals, and they actually put God first in their lives. Holiness can't be caught, but it can be practiced. Practicing holiness doesn't earn us holiness. God makes us holy. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, practicing holiness means that we are acting like what God has already made us through his son Jesus. It's coming out in our actions. His holiness is coming out in our words. It's coming out in our attitudes. It's coming out because we're putting God first. And this is an important truth that all Christians need to know and hold on to. Obedience is better than sacrifice. God wants you to obey. He doesn't want you to observe rituals only. I'm not telling you that you don't need to come to church regularly or give or serve or pray or do the other things that we so often stress are the fruit and the products of a holy Christian life. You should do those things, but you do those things as acts of loving obedience to God, not half-hearted thinking that hopefully holiness will rub off on you and he will bless you. You must practice those things from a genuine heart for the Lord, not because you think you're going to get him to do something for you. And your practice goes beyond these four walls to how you treat your family, how you honor Christ at work, how you walk with integrity, how you obey God's word when you read it, and what you're doing on Friday and Saturday night, how you walk with the Spirit and obey his prompting and his direction. Holiness is not contained in this building. Holiness is what God has given to you through his son Jesus that you might be set apart in every area of your life no matter what day or time it is. Are you practicing holiness? Are you walking in holiness? Does God have first place in your life, not just in your words to other Christians, but does he actually occupy the most important position in your life? Do you obey his word? Is your desire to honor God? And is that desire clear to others? If I came to your family and asked them, if your desire is to live a set-apart life to God, would they be able to identify that that's a priority for you in your life? If I went to your boss and said, hey, this person says they're a Christian, do they indicate throughout the week by how they respond to you and their coworkers that they put God first and they honor him in all things. Is that clear to the people that you're around? Would your boss say it? Look, holiness isn't caught, but it is practiced once it's given by God. If it's not practiced, is it real? Probably not. We find the final lesson concerning holiness in the verses we just read a minute ago. You can move toward holiness by paying attention 
to discipline. Our series is called Consider Your Ways, and Haggai refers to that phrase three times in these verses. In verse 15, he tells the people to consider if they were blessed before they obeyed God. In verse 18, he tells them to consider if their situation improves after they put God first. And again, at the end of verse 18, he calls them to pay attention to how God blesses them once they put him first. And this is where we have to be careful that we don't try to make some kind of one-to-one applications because we don't have the same kind of covenant with God that Israel did. God promised to bless their agriculture if he put them first. I don't even have a garden for God to bless. So unless he's going to like multiply the baby carrots in like the crisper drawer of my fridge, then it's not a one-to-one application of God like, I don't want it to rain in my refrigerator, right? And so This is not a one-to-one thing. If I do this, God will do this for me. We can't apply it that way. We need to consider other applications. And God has not made this same covenant with our nation either. We need to be aware of that. God did not say to the United States, if you'll honor me, I will send rain on your crops and I will honor you. He just, he hasn't done that. This was a covenant that he had made with Israel, and it was specific to them. And so it's tempting to say that if we're righteous, God will bless us, externally, but we have to be careful with that. Not every hardship we endure is judgment from God. However, there are times when God disciplines us and we should pay attention to those times. Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 12, five to six reminds us of this. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. God may get our attention through the consequences of our sin, the correction of a parent or a trusted friend, or the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Even when our suffering is not caused by God, it's still an opportunity for us to have perseverance and growth in our lives. God often gets our attention in our frustrations and our pain. We should pay attention to the discipline and the blessing of the Lord. What brings conviction in our lives? And what brings joy from the Lord? What are the results of our sin and disobedience? When we live without reflection, we may miss the conviction and the direction of God in our lives. We may start to assume holiness, thinking that we caught it while we were at church on Sunday morning, not even realizing that we have unclean things in our lives because we're not reflecting on how is God disciplining me for my good? Imagine the discipline and the conviction of the Lord like the symptoms of a disease. If you don't pay attention to the symptoms, the disease gets worse. Similarly, the discipline of the Lord is designed to get your attention, stir you to repentance, and then move you toward holiness. Is God disciplining you right now? Are you experiencing that conviction of the Holy Spirit that work that he does internally to convince you that something is wrong, that finger that he puts on your heart and on your life or on some specific thing that you know is out of place, some habit that nobody else knows about but the Holy Spirit does and he's put his finger on that and you sense it as guilt. And not all guilt is bad. If you're a believer in Jesus, 
You're not condemned. You're not judged finally before the Lord's court. You have, you have the righteousness of Christ, but sometimes the Holy Spirit puts a, he- a finger, a heavy finger sometimes, of things in our lives and convicts us and says, this does not belong because you said when you came to me that you're mine and I've written my name on you and I've put on your heart all mine. This belongs to me, but this, this I don't want. So what are you going to do? Are you gonna serve this, or are you going to serve me? And sometimes we need to pay very careful attention because God's discipline is a grace. We so often feel like it is a threat, but God's discipline is no threat to his children. We read in Hebrews, if you're not disciplined, that's the threat. If you have no sense that God is moving me toward holiness, I have no sense that God is changing me and making me more like his son. That's when I should feel threatened because that should be an alert that says, man, God disciplines his children just like a good father or a good mother disciplines their children because they don't want them to end up with consequences in their lives that can ruin them. If God's not disciplining you, that should be a fearful thing. But if God's discipline is on you, you shouldn't run from it. You should say, Lord, I sense your discipline. I hear what you're saying. I confess my sin and I turn away from it? Are you going through some hardship or frustration as a result of not putting God first? Consider your ways. Don't ignore the warning signs. Pay attention to what brings discipline and what brings blessing. Worship team, would you come? These lessons will help you set your life apart for the Lord and bring his blessing. But what is the blessing that God gives to his people? It's not rain for your crops because, as we've already noted, God's covenant with us is different than Israel, and I don't have any crops for God to rain on anyway. So could we take what God said about their crops, could we just apply it as we want to, kind of whatever we hope God will increase in our lives, like money. I want God to give me more money. Well, God certainly can and does bless people financially, but I don't think that that's a guarantee for holiness Jesus said this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so if Jesus can call the poor blessed, then I don't think we can say, well, God's blessing can be equated simply to finance or to money. So we we can't say that it's just riches or ease that God gives his blessing. Perhaps it would be best to put it directly in the words of Jesus, as we've done in previous weeks. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Put God first and live for him, and he will take care of you. Now there's a blessing. It's the blessing of salvation. It's the blessing of being able to rest in the knowledge that God has me. He's written all mine on my heart. He has me, both now and in the future. It's the blessing of confidence. It's a blessing of freedom from anxiety and the ability to live for the Lord. It's a blessing of living out of my insecurities and living out of my fears. I don't have to do that anymore because God has said, you belong to me. You're seeking first my kingdom. I'll take care of everything else. It's the joy of the Lord that comes to strengthen. It's the knowledge that nothing can separate you from God's love. It's knowing that you're the Lord's, you're set apart from him, and he's got you. It's the blessing of simplicity. Put him first, he'll take care of the rest. This is the blessing that God gives to his people. It's also the blessing of his great and precious promises, which in the future does include 
comfort and, and ease and joy in his presence and being with him in heaven forever and ever. These are the blessings that the Lord gives. And these blessings are not obtained because holiness rubbed off on us one Sunday morning. These blessings are obtained because we have listened to the admonition of the Lord. Be holy, for I am holy. And we've said, yes, Lord. I can't be holy in myself. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the strength. And I can't cleanse my own sin. But I have believed in Jesus for holiness. And not only have I believed in Jesus to make me right in my past, I'm following him because I want to be right in my future. I don't want to pretend to be right. I actually want to be holy. I want my life to be set apart for you because I've seen that yours is the best way. Yours is the good way. I don't want the blessings of this world, Lord. I'm not looking for you to give me what the world has to offer because so often, church, let's be honest. Let's be honest for a moment. Sometimes what we do is we want to manipulate God into giving us the blessings of the world. Can we, can we be real with ourselves about that? Sometimes what we're looking for is God to give us what he never intends to give us because it's something from the world. But what God wants to do is give us something better than the world. He wants to give us his presence, his love, his joy, the assurance of salvation, the confidence of knowing that I'm in him and nothing can separate me from his love. These are the blessings of the Lord. And yes, sometimes he sees fit according to his will to pour in even external blessings so that we might continue his work and service to him in his kingdom. But we shouldn't be clamoring after those things and trying to catch holiness so that we can get something out of God. But instead we're saying, God, I'm all yours. And in my life, I'm going to please you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be set apart. I'm all yours. You can have everything. Would you close your eyes for just a moment this morning? Perhaps you've been in a church service in the past and you were invited to raise your hand. You prayed a prayer. It might have even been in this church. And so you did that and you thought that through praying that prayer for a few moments, you caught something. But there was never any dedication of your life to Jesus. There was never any laying down of yourself and saying, Lord, this is me. I've sinned against you, and I cannot be holy on my own, so I lay myself before you. You can have everything, all of my life, not Sunday mornings, everything. You can have Saturday night at 12 a.m. You can have Tuesday afternoon when I'm at work. You can have... You can have Thursday night when I'm at home with my, you can have everything. You can have all my thoughts, all my feelings, all my plans, all my future. And you never said that to the Lord. You never laid it out before him. You never said, Jesus, it's no longer about me trying to save something for myself. I believe you to save me because I can't seem to save me from myself. And if, you, if you've been in that place, maybe you've prayed that prayer before, but you've not given yourself to Jesus, or maybe you've never, you've never done anything like that before. You, you've, never, you've never prayed a prayer. You've never said, Lord, I need you. You've never said, Jesus, would you forgive me? This morning is an opportunity for you to do that, but I want you to be clear on what God is asking. He's not saying, will you pray a prayer this morning? Will you go through some religious motions? Nothing like that. What he's asking you this morning is, will you exchange 
doing life your way for what I've done for you in Jesus. And this is what God did for you in Jesus. When you were stuck in your sin and unable to get out of it, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to bear the weight and the punishment of your sin. And then three days later, raised him from the dead so that you could have new life in him. And the word of God tells you this, that if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That is, all of my life is dedicated to him. And you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved from sin. You'll be saved from Satan, and you'll also be saved from yourself. If you've never done that, or you did, and you weren't serious, you weren't dedicated to the Lord in that moment, you need to rededicate your life to Jesus this morning. I'm going to ask you to do something simple, and this doesn't save you. Don't take this as a religious action. It's just so that I can see and pray with you, because in a moment, I want to ask you to come so that we can help you to understand, how do I give my life to the Lord? How do I keep following Jesus? But if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never given your life to him. This morning, you're sensing something. You're sensing a weightiness. You're sensing a conviction. Something is trying to convince you. You need this you're not sure what that is, that's the Holy Spirit. God is talking to you. Will you listen to him this morning? Will you obey what he's saying? Will you give your life to Christ? Will you surrender to him today? If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you never confessed him as Lord and believed him to save you. Will you just lift up your hand this morning so that in a moment we can pray together? Is there anybody like that? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never given your life to him. You've not surrendered to him. You've not dedicated to him your life. Is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait for just one moment. This morning, Christians, I don't, I don't see hands, and so I'm going to assume that there are a lot of Christians in the room. Christian, are you living a life that's set apart to the Lord? The Bible says that he's made you his saints. He's made you holy. So my question to you today is, are you practicing that holiness? Or are you just clamoring for God to bless you as you are? God's blessing comes through his holiness. What's the Holy Spirit touching in your life today? What's he put his hand on? What reminder has he given in your life through discipline? Maybe it's not withholding rain. But maybe there's some other discipline, the consequence of some sin. Maybe there's something that you just know the Spirit's been speaking to me about and I've not laid it before him. I've not been surrendered in practice. This morning, I don't want you to leave before you make that right with God. And so this is not a walk of shame. This is not, this is not you confessing to us. This is you having a moment to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, I know through Jesus you've claimed all of me. Today, I want to be reminded that I'm all yours. If that's you, you just needed that reminder. You need to come and surrender something to the Lord. Or you need to say, I'm all yours. Would you just get up out of your seat quickly right now and make a place of prayer at this altar? If that's you, you know that there's something God has put his hand on in your life. The Holy Spirit's been speaking to something. Will you be bold and will you move? And will you allow God to do his work in your heart this morning? I'm going to wait for just a moment. Church, if we, if, we cannot be, if we cannot be honest with one another in moments like this, and we cannot be honest with the Lord in moments like this, it's going to be very difficult for us to be honest with the Lord and dedicated to Him when, when things are difficult. And so I would just ask one more time. This is not a moment of you confessing to anybody who's present, but I do want to have a moment where you have an opportunity to respond to the Lord, because if He's pressing you holiness into your life, if He's saying, be dedicated to me, 
You haven't been as you haven't been set apart. You haven't been dedicated like you should. You you claim to be holy, but your life doesn't reveal that. Don't hesitate to come and make a place of prayer and dedicate yourself to the Lord today and say, Lord, everything in me, everything in me. Jesus, today we wait for you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be in your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to holiness. Your word says that without holiness, we won't see you. So Jesus, I thank you that you give us opportunities to be real with you, to be honest before you. And I thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us stuck in the places where we would be stuck without you, but that you put your gentle hand of conviction and discipline on our lives and you cause us to hear the voice of your spirit and you begin to draw and to pull us. And today, Lord, you are much better than I am at looking into hearts and knowing what's going on in lives. Jesus, you and only you see the internal things. You see, Lord, where each of us, each individual here this morning, has been dedicated maybe to things that are not right, has been dedicated to things that are distractions from you. And even where there may not be some blatant, obvious sin to the others who are looking on, Holy Spirit, you know where each of us have also failed to just give our all to you, to be totally surrendered to you. Lord, you see everything that we have reserved from you. You know every plan that we think that we've laid out for our future, that we've not asked you about, that we've not said, Lord, if you don't want this, then I don't want this. Lord, you know every desire of our hearts that we have held on to and not said, Lord, even this is dedicated to you. Lord, you know every moment, you know every day of the week and every piece of our schedule where we have not said, this belongs to Jesus. Lord, you see our attitudes and your word divides between soul and spirit. You judge the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so Lord, today you see right down into the depths of what motivates us and whether what motivates us is actually dedication to you or some vain hope that if I look religious, God will bless me or other people will think that I'm great or God will give me what I want. Lord, you see right down into our very thoughts and intentions. Today, Lord, lay those things bare that we might be right with you. And Father, we pray that we would not be a church or a people holy in name, but we would be a church holy in practice and in dedication to you. And Father, when the world calls us to something that is totally different than what you call us to, we pray that you would enable us to be firm and to be dedicated to you. Lord, write on our hearts and in our memories, holy to the Lord. This belongs to me. And teach us, Father, to walk as living sacrifices, blameless, holy, and pleasing to you. This is real worship. Help us to be real worshipers. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. We dedicate ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would just go quietly this morning. If you want to find a place to pray, you can. If you want to remain in prayer for a while, you are certainly welcome to do that.
We'll see you again Wednesday when we gather again for prayer. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.